0: to be the point where I'm going to insert the polka music. You
1: mean the Irish music? The
0: Irish music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm here with Chris Arnold on Halloween, um, which is kind of funny, I guess. I think when we talked about this originally, I, I think you'd made a reference to some, maybe some potentially scary voices. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so. some scary voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to have Chris here. Um I've known Chris for a while. I bet you it's been... I was trying to think. It's probably been eight years, maybe, since we first met, something like that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'd say so. I moved to Houston in two th- at the end of 2009... Uh,
0: 2010. 2010 when right, I moved there. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, yeah. So and I think we first bumped into each other probably with Greater Houston Youth Lacrosse, I bet.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And uh, Chris is one of my my favorite people on the local scene. We always had a blast. There was always the... The, the Greater Houston Youth Lacrosse meeting, which was always a disaster. Um, <laughs> and then there was the post-meeting, which was, I think, generally me, you, and Bob Wallace, mm-hmm. and we go drink a few beers and solve all the, the world's problems, at least Greater it Houston's.
1: All about, yeah, was solving problems, yeah, yeah, beers yeah. were secondary. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: um, and I think you had uh, my all-time favorite lacrosse quote. I think we had had a particularly difficult Greater Houston meeting, and I think we'd gone... I think it was downtown i think we ended up walking across the street to a bar or something and and i don't remember the exact details of the meeting but the quote from you was basically something along the lines of i i, I don't know why those people get to treat me like that here because over in europe i'm something <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm big i'm big in europe so <laughs> that's one of my favorite all-time lacrosse quotes
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> Someone gave me a shirt one time and said, I'm big in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That's a great
0: quote. Um, so, all right. So, yeah, I guess we should officially get started. It's, it always amazes me how quickly I get off track on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you know the format. You've listened to a couple of these, right? I, I, I like yeah. to, to kind of figure out how everybody came to the game, right? And I know I'll, I'm going to be honest. I was thinking about talking to you this afternoon and I felt like this interview could probably go on for three hours if we weren't careful just because I know there's so much, right, um, which is cool. I, d- I don't care. I'm all about it. It's awesome. Um, but, yeah, take, you know, kind of take me back to, to where you started, how you got involved in the game, who got you involved in the game, right, the beginning, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's actually uh, many people uh, will be surprised to hear this. But I grew up in uh, I grew up on Long Island in New York in Massapequa. It's kind of a lacrosse hotbed. It's also a soccer hotbed. Um, I played soccer I wrestled played basketball I ran track played baseball I did not play lacrosse um, it's we, we, we certainly plenty of it around everyone I knew had lacrosse sticks we threw the ball around but I just didn't play lacrosse and by the time I got to high school uh, my dad had got sick and my brother and I were kind of running wild uh, and kind of dropped all sports altogether uh, and I ended up dropping out of high school and joining the army when no, I was 17, um, anyway, fast forward to, I'm out of the army and I moved to Florida and I started, uh, I went to the local club team. I always wanted to play lacrosse, went to the club team and, uh, right away just got sucked in and started, uh, playing club ball when I was like 30. That's when you, uh, that's
0: when you started.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Oh, that's Awesome.
1: Yeah, I was like 30 years old, and I went out with a friend of mine, and we went out to a local men's team was playing. Uh, It was the last game of the season. I'm like, yeah, I'm totally in. They're like, all right, well, we're done for the year. Uh, We'll uh, see you next year. (laughs) So we went to the bar where they have the sign-ups the next year, and I signed up and uh, just started playing club ball. And that same year, two of my friends, Tony Collette and Kirk Smith, who are both upstate New York guys, were down uh, here in Florida as well. Uh, They were coaching at Jesuit high school. Uh, and they were like, you should come coach. Cause everyone was short coaches as, as is all everywhere. Um, so I went to, to, uh, my first year playing lacrosse. I went and started as an assistant coach at Jesuit high school. The next year I became the president of the men's club team. And then the next year I was the head coach at Jesuit high school.
0: <laughs> I, love, I love that. I love, the, I love that because it's like, you, you just jumped right in Straight in your eyeballs, oh, right? I got
1: everything else. I just went straight in. I was just all across all the time. I was playing club ball. I was coaching, and then uh, I was all about it. And then, so within uh, four years, five, five, five years after starting coaching, um, uh, I mean, uh, my wife and I, I was, I was looking at making a move. That's when we we moved to Ireland. And I had been in touch with guys there, uh, and uh, I got a coaching job at the University of College Dublin. Uh, which is the largest university in Ireland. I was the men's coach there, uh, which led to being assistant coach for the men's uh, national team, which led to being the head coach for the, uh, for the, head coach for the men's national team. Um, and then I ended up moving to Austria. I was the, the head coach in Austria. And after the, two, uh, after the 2010 World Championships, when I was head coach of Austria, uh, we were looking to move back to the States and Brian to Spain, who is a Kingwood alumni, who had started uh, One Lacrosse, a uh, manufacturing company, uh, hired me to do sales for his company. and He wanted me to move to Houston, and he introduced me to the people at Kingwood High School who were looking for a coach. And they uh, interviewed me over the phone when I was living in Austria, and I moved to Houston in 2010, right after the World Championships. And and that's how I got to Houston after all that. It was about uh, all said and done, not even 10 years from the time I started playing to the time I – uh, did all that and ended up in Houston.
0: Man, that's awesome. I love yeah. that story. I love I love stories like that or, or you hear stories about uh, Coach Byrne or Coach Holman, right, guys who went off and had careers, right, yeah. and came to the game, back to the game or came to the game late in their lives. I didn't realize you got such a late start. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The, how, how long were you at, you said, were you at Jesuit for five years?
1: Uh, yeah, four years. Four, four years? years? Two years as an assistant, two years as head coach.
0: And so when you were there, I, I assume that was before uh, that was before the the sport was sanctioned in, in, in Florida. It was Is that correct?
1: It was during. It, it became sanctioned while I was the head coach there. It was uh, it was funny because we had uh, won three West Florida championships as a club team. My first three years there, or my my or the, my first two years there, or whatever. And then we got sanctioned and, and then uh, became a school sport. All of a sudden we had, we had fields, we had locker rooms, we had classrooms, the whole thing. And we didn't do so well the first year. <laughs> you know, it was like we finally had everything we wanted. And then, uh, you know, but uh, actually Jesuits a great program. Since I left there, uh, they've had great coach after great coach and they've, they've won state championships and they've had a stellar run over the last 15 years uh, since I left. So, um, it's, you know, and Florida, lacrosse in general, has blown up much like, my, like uh, Texas.
0: The... the uh... So you were there for that transition to to being a sanctioned school sport, mm-hmm. um, but I, it doesn't sound like you were a school employee, right? There's 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 there's, oh. there's always discussion here in Texas, right? One of the one of the points, and it's a valid point of discussion, is hey, if we're a sanctioned sport, you know, we're going to lose ninety five percent of our coaches, right? And right. You know, there's different models. I know I talked to Brendan Hunt the other day about Michigan, and he said in Michigan, coach, coaches don't have to be teachers, right? They they. Mm-hmm. they they're not necessarily school employees or school district employees. How did that work in Florida then during the transition and how does it work now?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's, it's different everywhere. Obviously, in Florida at the time when it became – here it's FHSAA, uh, you know, when, it, when that happened um, – they, they were still employing, they were, the, the stipend was nothing, so people who were doing it were not school employees, or they could be a school employee, but the point was, for a couple of years, you didn't have to be a school employee. So it, through the transition period, it didn't matter, but now it's school employees, teachers, coaches, the same thing as it is everywhere else, but for the first couple of years, it didn't matter.
0: What was the, it's interesting that you were there on that, the cusp of that change. What was the the impact? So I I assume prior to that change in Florida, the teams were run by parent boards. Mm -hmm. What was the impact once it became a school-sponsored sport was, was it a positive impact that the parents weren't involved in the administration any longer? Was it a negative impact? Was there any impact? Did they still exert control over the boosters, right, or the, through the booster, Yeah, right?
1: no, it was different. Over, for, the, for that particular instance with, with, uh, with Jesuit, it really had no impact because uh, it was a very small – I mean, it was parent-run, but it was small, and there was a lot of support from the school in the first place. We, we already had support from the school, the athletic director, and everybody else. The transition really wasn't that difficult. Uh, it's different. Like in, in Texas, you know, everything. Uh, when I was in at Kingwood, uh, Kingwood, everything was about the uh, the parent run board. That's right. what made Kingwood so great was the amount of support they had. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. Uh, when I fr- when I first got to Kingwood, I couldn't even believe the kind of support that we had there. Uh, it was fantastic. That's what made everything possible uh, in the development of the Kingwood lacrosse program.
0: That's interesting. So you were there at Jesuit for four years. Well, in in. You said you were an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. What, what was your role as an assistant coach there? Offense, defense, uh, offense. Running the box, <laughs> offense. Right.
1: Offense. Yeah, I ran the box. That's right. my favorite thing. My favorite thing to do in lacrosse is run the box. That is my absolute favorite thing. Is it really? Oh yeah, that's my favorite thing. All right. Well, yeah, do when... The hardest part for me for b- being a head coach was is is not doing that. You know, it was not being involved in that. Um, uh, yeah, I was wondering how how long it would take for this to come up. But uh, Jeremy Platt, who uh, who I love coaching with, he when, when he he obviously he coaches Ireland now, and I've retired from coaching Ireland. But when we coached together, he would run the box, and uh, you know I'd try to get into it. And you know, I'm like, hey, let's do this, whatever. And he's not only a uh, loud presence, he's a physical presence. I couldn't get past him. Um, but, uh, <laughs> we had a lot of great, a lot of great fun we have was because, you know, when uh, I was trying to get into you know his stuff, same thing with Taylor Brooks at uh, Kingwood, same thing, you know, I mean, running the box is my favorite thing, but you can't, you can't do both. You can't be a head coach and run the box. I mean, yeah, be, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on.
0: So when you left Jesuit, you said you, you, you left Jesuit, not for any lacrosse reason, it sounded like you and no. the wife just wanted to move overseas, right?
1: Yeah, we had a plan. There was a plan in place. We were going. So um, I handed it over to my assistant coach, and then uh, the wife and I moved to Ireland. Uh, We were planning on uh, taking a couple years off, spending all of our savings. And I had gotten in touch uh, with uh, who's now one of my best friends, Michael Kennedy, who uh, runs Ireland lacrosse. Uh, And um, I went over there, and he hooked me up with uh, the guys at University College Dublin where I was coaching, and I was playing on the Dublin men's team. Uh, with with Mike and a, a bunch of other expats and some local guys who had graduated out of the university program. And it was very developmental there. There was only like maybe 20, 30, 40 players in Ireland.
0: In, uh, in, in all of Ireland?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is, uh, you know, you have guys who are studying abroad. Uh, we'd have, at the time, we only had like one club, became two clubs uh of the irish guys it became a university thing we get some guys in the university to play that kind of stuff but there's no youth program that kind of stuff so it's it's a really hard system maintained now you know now there's four or five university teams in ireland and there's a couple men's teams but still you know i mean at any time you can have a you can lose a lot of the players just to and out and that kind of stuff but um yeah i was coaching over there so i coached over there for uh three uh three seasons three or four seasons
0: what years for that
1: 2007 through 2000 2007 8 nine, 3 years that so I coached uh, in Ireland and with the Irish national team and then I moved uh, and I coached at university in Vienna moved to Vienna
0: so was was you said Michael Kennedy I mean mm-hmm. was he already a lacrosse presence there in Ireland
1: Oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. he he I'm not going to say he, you know he's the sole reason but he's he's the president of Ireland lacrosse He's, uh, you know, one of those guys, one of those organizers who's just, you know, he's all about it all the time, you know. And uh, there's a lot of other, uh, especially expats Americans, uh, Tony Devine and others over there. that are just, you know, they're the core uh, of this, uh, the Dublin men's team. And they're the ones that were coaching the, the university guys. And I used to joke around because they basically started a university team so they have somebody to play. You know, they had the, the, the men's team. You we know, had like Sean Gibson, these Canadian guys, all these American dudes. And then they, they needed somebody to play, so they taught the, the university guys how to play. And then they just go slaughter them, you know. <laughs> but they ended up no, but they ended up getting a lot better, and, uh, obviously. And um, you know, then uh, then you know Richie Moran and a lot of other American coaches got involved uh, with the national team. Uh, over the years, 2000, uh, you know, 2000, I don't know what years, it is, 2006. Um, and so then you have American players coming over, guys with Irish passports and this kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, figuring out how a national team would work and how to bring the Irish guys and how many American guys with passports and what's fair and what's not fair and that whole thing. And that's, that's all across international lacrosse. That's, you know, every nation has mm-hmm. that issue. Uh, you're going to have Americans, you know, on the team, and some some teams just you know bring all Americans, and it just becomes you know ridiculous. But the point was that Ireland was always focused on development of local players, and bringing the players, you know, uh, like now the rule is 51% of the team has to be Ireland-based, uh, you know, for you know to make sure that the Irish players who are developed locally have uh, a way and access to the national team. Is
0: is that a is that a a team rule, or is that a rule from the international governing body? No, it's team rule. There's a team rule. A, a team rule.
1: Gotcha. The international gov- the governing body rules are are, are pretty relaxed. Um, there's no uh, residency. It's all about citizenship. You know, it's about passports. Right. In fact, if you, you can have four non-passport holders on your roster, on your international roster, as long as they you know they meet certain criteria, like they they've they live in the country, they've lived there for X amount of time, uh, this kind of thing. So, um, no, but it's not, that's an Ireland rule. Ireland's done a very good job over the years, uh, of making sure that the local players have access to the national team and they're not excluded from it.
0: Is, is Michael Kennedy, is he still involved in, in Ireland lacrosse?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. He keeps retiring and then coming, uh, retiring, coming coming out of retirement. He just played in the world indoors. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's still the president of Ireland and the cross, and now he's got two sons, so I don't see him uh, getting out of there anytime soon. He's got two young sons, so I imagine he's locked in for another 15, 20 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> at, at some point, while you were in Europe, right? I, I believe you became involved with, you know, I, I don't know what to call it. Is it the governing body in Europe or the maybe the coaches' organization in Europe? Did did that occur while you were with the Ireland in Ireland with that team, yeah. or was that later? Yeah.
1: So the European Lacrosse Federation is the governing body in Europe, uh, and I got involved with them. Uh, it's you know I was coaching in Ireland, and then it's kind of funny because like in the off season, like not even the off season, the, the way we did our, our seasons in the fall and the spring, I was also coaching in Germany. I was going to Germany like every other weekend to coach a team there, um, and through that, and you know I just you know the European Lacrosse Community is fairly small, um, and again I'm, I like to be active in this kind of stuff, but I got involved with the coaching development. Um, uh, part of it. There's, there's a position that's like uh, coaching development coordinator or whatever it was. But basically it was helping. So many people would be Facebooking and emailing us and asking for, like, you know, they want uh, everyone wants a coaching job in Europe. And uh, the answer was, great, no problem. By the way, no, no one's going to pay you. But we'd love to have you, <laughs> and just uh. But also, people coming over for the summer—they're or going to study abroad. Just putting pe- putting clubs and people together. You know, a lot of times you have a couple of, of lax bros who're going to be traveling through Europe for the summer, and you'd put them in touch with a couple of clubs where they could do maybe, some clinics, uh, some coaching clinics or whatever. And clubs would put them up, uh, show them around, and it was a, a great way for lacrosse uh, people for you know from two different places to meet up and uh, share some resources and get together.
0: Did did uh. Did U.S. lacrosse have any role in that at all? Did they, did they speak or were they integrated with the European Lacrosse Federation or no, not at all?
1: No, no. I'm sure that there was probably, you know, I mean, again, you know, every year at the convention there'd be a presence and that kind of stuff. And then uh, obviously everyone comes out of the woodwork in a world championship year, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. But no, not really. There's not the European lacrosse market is so small I, to give you an idea at the time. So, so England, England lacrosse is the big deal. You know, England's in the blue group. Uh, they've got two, 200 something clubs in England. Uh, there's more, there was at the time, there was more lacrosse players probably in England than the rest of uh, Europe combined. I mean, Germany had a lot. So take out Germany and, I mean, there's not that many clubs everywhere. You'd have one or two clubs per country, three, four here and there, that kind of stuff. You know, you have one club in Croatia, one in Serbia, maybe four or five in Austria, um, one or two in Poland, you know, a couple in Spain, a couple in Italy, whatever. It's not that many teams overall. Um, but, uh, you know, so yeah the European Lacrosse Federation itself like you know the, some of the best tournaments the, they, I've ever been to are the European uh, like the European Championships or you go to like the Berlin tournament or the tournament in Prague every year because it's mostly developmental lacrosse but everyone's just so crazy for lacrosse uh, it's just this pure you know love of the game as opposed to everything else that can come along with lacrosse you know it's kind of kind of a, a pure form of it.
0: Yeah, I actually, ran across. I think it was the U nineteen, Elf Championships just recently, right on YouTube. They were yep. broadcasting them live on on YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was pretty cool. Uh, what um, the the coaching development position that you had in Europe? Mm-hmm. I actually remember you when again when we were we were working with Greater Houston Youth Lacrosse. I, re- I remember you referencing that position. I think at one point we were talking about trying to. Uh, establish some kind of framework or criteria for coaches or training for coaches here in, in Houston, <clears throat> which mm-hmm. in, in retrospect seems wildly ambitious. Um, <laughs> the what, what was that role? Maybe dig into that role a little bit, that coaching development role in Europe.
1: For, well, I mean, again, for that was uh, a lot of it was uh, coaching resources for newer programs in Europe, like uh, the Polish teams. Uh, the Polish, there was one Polish team at the time they need, you know, they contacted the, the European lacrosse federation. They would possibly donate some sticks, this kind of stuff. Uh, we would, uh, uh, try to find a coach, another coach in Europe to go do a clinic. Like I went to Warsaw and I did a clinic there for a couple of days, uh, got Polish TV and radio out there, a newspaper article, whatever played the you know, I refereed like the first game in Poland kind of thing. Um. There's people there. They were already doing lacrosse. A friend of mine, Glenn Gregory, who lives there, a guy from Maryland. You know, he had he had got some sticks, and guys were going together. But the, they needed more, you know, more support from the European Lacrosse Federation, and that, that's what they got. You know, they they got to coach me. I went there. You know, to get some free sticks and whatever. But that's basically what the, and then give them coaching resources, drills, practice plans, this kind of stuff, answer questions, whatever it might be. Uh, it's either. That aspect of it is, you know, actually providing direct support or finding people to go do it and connecting people. Right. Uh, if you if you say you're going, hey, uh, hey, we're going to Spain this summer. I say, hey, listen, I hear you are going to Spain. You want uh, interested in meeting up with the Barcelona lacrosse guys, you know, and that kind of thing. And that and that's a, a lot of it was that. The other thing was a coaching training program. Um, that, uh, again, Michael Kennedy and uh, Sean Gibson and a lot of uh, Tony Devine, a lot of guys in Ireland, had developed for Ireland. We had all talked about it and developed it there. It was kind of uh, also like England has their own, just like U.S. lacrosse has their own. And it was kind of like making that kind of resource available uh, to other developing clubs and seeing if, uh, you know, uh, help them with resources for teaching coaches how to coach and, and also get more players going, that kind of stuff.
0: Was, you know, when you, when you traveled around Europe and you, you went to these different countries to help, was it all at the U nineteen or men's level, or did you find yourself running into some youth programs and youth teams where that were developing at all in Europe?
1: Yeah, there's not really, there's not that much youth lacrosse. I mean, in England, yeah, uh, yeah, in England, uh, there's some now. Again, there's clinics here and there. I know in Ireland, we have done a bunch uh, at schools, but just you know, not that much. You know, in Germany, they got some, but it's mostly uh, collegiate. You know, uh, post collegiate, you know, or yes, you know, university kids and just older than that. So it's all guys in their 20s and girls, too. You know, we did, obviously, we did men's and women's both, but uh, very little, you know, we did the odd youth clinic here and there or supported it, but it's not a whole lot of youth stuff going on.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I thought I heard a an interview with Mike Brand somewhere along the way that said he was in England at one point.
1: Mm-hmm. And, Mike Brandt was uh, <laughs> so I obviously I know him from Texas, and then for the 2014 World Championships, he was coaching with uh, Thailand.
0: Oh, really? And, I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah, he
1: got hooked up with Thailand, and it's funny because I've always brought my friends, and uh, you know, uh, with every team that I've coached for Ireland or Austria, I've always brought friends of mine from the state to to, to help me coach or whatever, and uh, you know, and uh, we've talked. I've talked about it with a lot of people over the years. Um, but yeah, he was looking for a spot. I didn't have any. We talked about it briefly and then uh, he ended up going, so, you know, we meet on the sidelines playing, uh, it was Austria versus Thailand and, you know, Mike Brandt's over there. And it's like that. You see like a lot of people, you know, again, the, the same, a lot of the same people circulate through international lacrosse. Uh, so you see a lot of your old friends, it's crazy. You know, you see a lot of, you know, hall of fame coaches too, you know, Jack Haley and, uh, um. You got, uh, you know, Richie Moran and all these different guys. Guys coach Team USA. Then they're coaching like Jack Elliott was coaching Germany for years. You know that kind of stuff. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's crazy. You know, but um,
0: so when what,
1: yeah. while you were in
0: Ireland, were you still playing?
1: Yeah, I played uh, on the Dublin lacrosse team.
0: Oh,
1: all right. And uh, yeah, we, you know, and uh, the the Riggers, the Dublin Riggers, is the uh, the box team. Plus, we had our little uh, our little box league in Ireland. We played in a gymnasium in North Dublin you know, where you're hitting, hitting each other into the walls or out the, you know, out the doors, you know, you hit a guy into the doors, he goes flying outside. <laughs> so
0: so there's, a, there's a box lacrosse scene in Dublin, Ireland?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, and it's much bigger now. I mean, the, they do, I mean, the, 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 the indoor guys, Sean Gibson, uh, who's a Canadian guy who's lived in Ireland for years and years and years, um, he, uh, he organizes, I mean, I guess it's probably going on 15 years, that he's been doing the annual trips with the, the indoor team and then he runs uh, helps run and he's captain of the, uh, the Irish uh, national indoor team yeah it's probably just as popular as the, as the field
0: really yeah oh, wow
1: yeah well they just did crazy for it they just want to play all year long you know they'll go wherever they have to go you know they're just looking for you know a way to play you know the, um,
0: <clears throat> so was it after the 2010 championships that you moved to Austria?
1: Um, no, I moved to Austria after two thousand nine. I was head coach of Ireland. I played. We played at the Celtic Cup in Scotland, and then I moved to Austria to prepare them for the World Championships in twenty ten, which was uh, in Manchester in England. So, so, so how did
0: how did you how did you end up making that move? Was it again just you and your wife deciding, hey, let's try something different, or was there something? Well, did, did somebody contact you and say, hey, come coach for this team now?
1: Well, I'll tell you the deal. I'll tell you the real deal. So. At the time, there was a lot of Americans involved with Ireland lacrosse. I was the new guy because, and I was living in Ireland, so you know, I kind of, you know, there was a, a, enough groundswell for me to get onto the coaching staff as an assistant coach for the uh, European Championships in uh, whatever year, 2008 or whatever it was. Uh, and then for 2009, they made me head coach. So that's a it's a non-major year, so we just did uh, you know the Celtic Cup, which is a you know, big tournament. You know, England and. Uh, uh, or Scotland and Ireland, and you know playing playing in uh, Scotland, and France comes as well. But the next year is the World Championships year. So I was going to be rotated out of the head coach position. I'll be back to the same guys who had been doing it the years before. So I knew I wasn't going to be the head coach for the, for the World Championships in 2010. Uh, I knew the Austrian guys from other tournaments over the last couple of years before that. Uh, and they were like, yeah, I mean, we, we just we just don't have a coach. And there's a bunch of great guys. The Austrians are just – when you go to a tournament, they're all hanging out together. When they're, when they're not playing, the men's and the women's teams, they were just like really tight-knit. Just, just like crazy for lacrosse. Um, and so – uh, I basically talked to them, and they were like, yeah, we'd love to have a coach, and they offered me uh, an apartment. They had an apartment that someone's family owned, oh, wow. and they said, if you, if you, if you come to, to Vienna, we'll let you stay in this apartment. So I told my wife, I was like, you know, that sounds good. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, and I, I was like, listen, you know, we'd been in Ireland for, for three years, whatever, we loved Ireland, have a great time, but it was just an opportunity, it was an adventure, you know, so we went, and we lived in Vienna for a year, and I coached them for that year leading up to the World Championships. Uh, and then we did the World Championships, and it was fantastic. It was one of the you know, best years of our lives. Vienna uh, Vienna's an amazing city, and the uh, Austrians are, um, uh, again, they're they're smart, smart lacrosse players, and they're very coachable. They they wanted a coach. They were they were hungry, thirsty for for lacrosse knowledge, um, and they were doing a great job by themselves. But they were all over it. I mean, these guys wanted to practice multiple times a week all year long. They were you know they wanted to do classroom. They wanted to study film. Um, and I used to joke all the time that, you know, uh, the Austrians are the polar opposites of the Irish, you know, it's like, uh, it'd be like the Austrians. It was like, all right, guys, this is what we do. We do this, we do that. We do this, we do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. This guy does that. All right, go. And then they would do it. And one guy would make a mistake and they'd all stop. Like, you know, the whole plan screwed up. I'm like, keep going, improvise, figure it out. <laughs> with, the, with the Irish, it was the opposite. You're like, all right, guys, do this, that, the other thing. They're like, Right. And they go out there and just do whatever the hell they want, you know. I mean, of course, that's an oversimplification. But the uh, the Austrians were just very hungry, and the, you know, they just they just wanted to learn, it. and they just they got so much better, so fast in that year that it was super encouraging. And you know, it was the first major tournament we went to, and we started off in last place. At the 2010 World Championships, we went uh, five and three, and we ended up 22nd. In the world, out of thirty something.
0: So this was in Denver.
1: No, oh. this is in Manchester. Right? Oh, in England. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but either way, I mean, like we were, we were in it, you know, like uh, we were beating the Dutch at halftime, and the Dutch ended up at like you know. Tenth or something, you know. We we had a great time. You know, it was all. It was a lot. Of, it was about special team stuff. It was about rides and clears. It was about uh, man up, and man down. It was ab- about uh, how we were subbing through the box. You know, it was like it was like little things here and there that we were doing, uh, that made a big difference in our game. You know, we did a zone defense, you know, I mean, like, it's crazy. You know, a lot of teams in Europe are like, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. What is this? You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> we're like we're like jumping the ball on man up, on man down. You know, we're like jumping, you know, first pass. We're just like going after the ball, you know, that kind of stuff. Um,
0: but, were you, no. just So during this time in, in Vienna, when you had taken that role, were you still involved in the European Lacrosse Federation from a, from a governance and a coaching development perspective, or had you? Had, yeah.
1: Yeah, but you know, again, I wasn't in any way, you know, shape or form in in a leadership position there. That was like that was just like one of those things. They need they need people on committees. They need people to do stuff. They need people who are going to step up and do things. So, uh, the vice president or uh, or whoever the director of men's lacrosse was at the time, Henning Schmidt, uh, was you know he he was like he needed help. You know, he was doing a lot of stuff, and I said, oh, you know, I'll help. I'm in. So, uh, and you know what? The truth of the matter was it. it, I would travel a lot, you know. My only job was lacrosse at the time. So I was looking to go to Switzerland for the weekend. And, um, you know, we would take a train there from Vienna or a cheap flight from Ireland when I was there. And I went to Barcelona, I went to Poland, I went to Switzerland, I went went to Germany, wherever we went, uh, you know, I mean – that's, that's, that's the fun part of it, you know, and also at the time I was working for one lacrosse doing sales stuff. So I'd bring all kinds of sticks and stuff and sell them. And, you know, I had a bunch of defect stuff, like misprinted stuff we'd give to the new programs. And it was, you know, that was promotional stuff for one lacrosse. So it, was, it all worked out, you know, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you in Austria?
1: I lived there for a year, but I coached them the, the whole time I was in Texas. I coached them too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'd go back and forth, uh, you know, four times a year. I coached them through 2015, and then I was uh, head coach of Ireland again in 2016. So when? Yeah, so I lived there for a year, then I moved to Texas.
0: All right. So, and what prompted the move? I think you touched on this earlier, but what prompted the move to, to Texas?
1: Yeah, well, after the World Championships in 2010. You know, uh, we were trying to, you know, figure out what's going on. Qu- Honestly, my wife and I were running out of money. We'd been uh, abroad for four years or whatever. Um, our budgeting before moving was proving to not be entirely accurate. Uh, turns out, <laughs> you know. Uh, but anyway, so we were looking to move back to the States anyway. And then, Brian, like I said, Brian to Spain, who wanted me to move to Houston for my one lacrosse job, which was a sales job, uh, but wasn't really enough money to move back to the States. But we needed we needed to move back to the States to kind of regroup or get some amazing job that, you know, is impossible to find to live overseas. Um, but he put me in touch with the, uh, the Kingwood people, and they were looking for uh, a coach. And uh, so we made the move. You know, and it was uh, obviously, as you can tell, is one of the best decisions I've ever made.
0: And what year was that that you landed? Or remind me again, in Houston. 2000,
1: 2010. ten. Two thousand ten. Yeah, that's
0: right. All right, so let's start. Kingwood. So when you landed at Kingwood, honestly, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to recollect what was in Kingwood before you, and I can't. What? What, what was the? What was the? What was well, going had... on in Kingwood before you landed there?
1: They had a team for, for many years and, uh, good teams, you know, ups and downs, whatever, but they, you know, the Kingwood program has always been strong. Um, you know, I mean, they, uh, they had good coaches. I mean, for years and years, I mean, Brian to Spain, who, again, who was trying to get me to move there, he had played at Kingwood high school. I, I, you know, again, I, I probably should know this, uh, but offhand, I don't remember exactly what year it started, but it had been around for a long time It had been around for 20 years. Um, By the time I got there, Uh, at the time, uh, Mike Block's brother, Randy, was coaching there uh, with uh, Justin Summers and Matt Walton, another alumni. Uh, And uh, they had a good team. They had a a really strong senior uh, junior class about to be seniors. Um, And so uh, when I got hired, there was also at the time, coincidentally, a lot of the parents who had kids who were about to be seniors also had like middle schoolers. You know, you have like the older brother, the younger brother, right. whatever. And there's a really strong group of parents, well-organized, with clear vision, who um, when they hired me, they said, listen, um, assuming this works out, we want a commitment for, for, for you to stay for six years from the time the current seventh graders get through high school. And I was like, done. Because that's what I'm looking for. My, my, again, I, I, I coach whatever. What I really like coaching is high school. I like developmental lacrosse. I especially like that idea of coaching uh, a seventh grader all the way through high school. That's that's the sweet spot right there. You know, talking about uh, it's it's more about than just lacrosse. It's about mentoring. It's about developing, uh, being there. You know, when I was at Jesuit, their their motto is "men for others." It's all about uh, you know being there for that kid for not just lacrosse reasons. Not just about winning lacrosse. It's about you know, help mentoring, the whole raise a village thing, et cetera. I, you know, I said one of the reasons why I co- I enjoy coaching. And one of the reasons I enjoy coaching in high school so much is because, uh, if I had had a coach like that, maybe when I was going through my rough times as a young, as a teenager, this kind of stuff, maybe I wouldn't have, uh, gone off the rails. I wouldn't have dropped out of high school, uh, this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I needed, I needed some of that in my life. And so it was important to me when I was coaching, you know, and going back to, the, the, to Kingwood, that we had a really strong program that had a good culture, not only a lacrosse culture, just a good organizational culture, and uh, the people were already there for that. They were just, they were just looking for the right coach for it.
0: What, the, what was the role that they hired you for? Was it just the high school head coach, or was it a bigger role than that? Um, it
1: was. Uh, it started as the uh, head coach of the high school, uh, and it became also the director of youth lacrosse. Um, I I know you probably talked to, you talked to Platt. He's running the lacrosse Academy there. That was mine beforehand. We kind of formulated that as well. So basically I was a director of youth lacrosse, uh, the head coach at the high school. I did a lacrosse Academy, which was like a fall ball, uh, fundamentals, uh, kind of thing. Um, and then I would also during the season, besides being the head coach at the high school, I would coach another team. Uh, so I usually coached one of the middle school teams, seventh or eighth grade. Um, in Kingwood, we would generally have maybe two teams at seventh, two at eighth, and I didn't always coach the eight team. Uh, a lot of it had to do with, with whatever teams my nephews made. My nephews were, uh, you know, in seventh and eighth grade. But uh, I'm like, all right, I'm coaching. I'm the vice. Uh, I'm coaching varsity, and I'm coaching the seventh grade B team. <laughs> 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 and everyone was just trying to wait to see which which team my nephews made because uh, I got to give them a ride. You know, I'm going to be their coach, whatever. Um, but it was, you know, it was uh, the director of youth lacrosse uh, and the high school. But it was also it was about developing coaches at those positions and uh, standardizing practices across the board. Uh, besides, you know, uh, standards, you know, as far as coaching standards, but it's also, you know, the offense and defense and everything else, but making it a system all the way through. We, we all see how that works. You know, you see it. You see, we've seen it firsthand in the woodlands uh, and other places. You know, you see it up north all the time, but uh, the woodlands is a good example in Houston. And uh, we were trying to do the same thing in, in Kingwood, not copy the woodlands necessarily, but that that's the kind of system. is You have to have – you know, you standardize everything from middle school through we'd have whatever offense I was running at the high school. We're running that in middle school too. We're just running a light version of that, you know, right. or at least the concepts are introduced to them. So when they get to high school, they're not just like, I don't know what's going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They at least understand some basic concepts that play into it. Right. Yeah. Um, the, so the Kingwood, <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like you're, you're pretty fond of those Kingwood parents. because Primarily because they ran a pretty tight ship, and it sounded like the organization was pretty effective when they hired you. What was the, what was the hiring process like? I mean, was it literally just you and who was it, Brian Despain?
1: No, he wasn't even involved. He introduced me to the members of the board, and this is over uh, the phone. I was in Austria at the time. They interviewed me. I had just come back from the World Championships, and uh, I think that they had already done this process with local local coaches who was available at the time and they were certainly gambling because they hired me sight unseen. I mean, they knew from Brian, they, they certainly did their, their homework. They called and, uh, I gave them references and they called Jesuit high school and they called people at Ireland and whatever else. And they talked to a lot of people. They certainly you know, did that kind of stuff, but they, uh, they hired me before I even moved there. Uh, and then I, moved. I had been, i had actually been there one time, but they hadn't met me at the time. I had, I had visited uh, Texas on my way through to go somewhere, but um, yeah, so they hired me, and then uh, so I, it actually worked out perfect because for a lot of reasons. But um, I got hired. I started in August or September for fall ball, and they were like, "All right, we're signed up for three tournaments: the uh, the Dallas Fall Tournament, the Austin Fall Tournament, and the Houston Fall Tournament." And I was, of course, talking a big game. All right, we're going to change everything. That's what we're going to do. Whatever. And I, I put in my new systems, and we had you know a month to prepare. And uh, like the kids, you know, I was I'm 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 more disciplined than they were used to. I mean about the way I do things, you know, about showing up for practice or whatever, you know. Um a lot of things. I changed a lot of things, whatever. Um so here we go. We go to our First, we, we ended up winning the Dallas tournament, the Austin tournament, and the Houston tournament that year. So by the end of the fall, I, they were sold. <laughs> it all it also happened I inherited this amazing senior class. This is not, not me. Believe me, the guys like before me, like Randy Block and those guys, they had done a fantastic job with these players. Um, and the people who had coached them and all these dads who were, were still involved, they had been coaching these kids themselves in middle school, whatever else. They had a bunch of great lacrosse players. Um but you know the systems you know help us gel together, so you know it worked out fine, and we had a great year. That was the first year that Kingwood had gone to states, and who knows how long we went to states that year and lost in the quarterfinals um, narrowly. You know, I mean it was the first time, like I said, Kingwood had been to the states in a while, and so it was a, it was a great first year for me. So that certainly set the tone and laid the foundation.
0: So when you took that role, did they give you the opportunity to hire your assistants? Did they give you a a framework and requirements and a budget and say, so you oh, yeah. you go forth and hire, or did, did the board itself hire those assistants?
1: Uh, there was going to be a review process for anything, but, you know, I didn't want to go, again, who did I know? I didn't know anybody. I just moved there. Uh, I went to the coaches that were still there, uh, and uh, I offered them to stay. Randy Block, who's Mike Block's brother, um, understandably he left. He did not stay. He had been the head coach, and basically they were firing him. Uh, I totally understand him not staying. Uh, Matt Walton did stay for one season, and then Justin Stum- Justin Summers stayed for several years. Uh, and he and I are very good friends. Um, so we kept, you know, I try to keep the coaching staff in place. Um, Gary Patton came out of retirement. I had gotten talked to him, and uh, uh, he came out right when I got there and was offered to do stats. And then I asked him to, to, to coach JV or whatever. And then I went and also Andrew R. Curie, who had been the head coach of Kingwood for 10 years um, who, uh, was probably out of it for about five years. Uh, I went and talked to him and asked him, uh, convinced him to come back and he did eventually. Um, so we built a coaching staff with local people, a lot of Kingwood people, um, in the first couple years.
0: What the, your experience in Europe developing that, that coaching training and coaching curriculum for Europe, did that come into play at that point here in Texas?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, coaching, you know, know, coaching is leadership. You know, there's uh, obviously there's a huge amount of lacrosse knowledge that's important, but there's also a huge amount of uh, people management that's, that's important, you know, and recognizing people's strengths and letting people do what they want to do and and being respectful of other people. Um, When you have coaches that have been at different positions throughout their careers and you try to put them all on the same staff, you can have a lot of conflict and this kind of stuff. So, uh, again, my my leadership style is collaborative. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, just top-down, you know, micromanagement, that kind of stuff, my way or the highway. Um, one of the things I love about coaching is I, I learn something new every day, every time I coach with other people. You never know when it's going to come out. You know, we've all done that when we're coaching. Uh, some other, like Mike Block's a great one for it. Mike Block would come up with a drill, and I'd be like, man, I haven't seen that drill or something like that. I, I used to run a drill like that all the time. You know, Mike Box was great for just a variety of drills and bringing, you know, not getting in a rut and that kind of stuff. Um, that's why I love coaching with other coaches, and you can only you only get that that benefit if you if you let them coach with how they want to coach. Sure, I'm going to lay out the whole the grand scheme of things, but it's going to be with input and everything else. Um, but that's my like I said, my favorite thing is building a coaching staff and and uh, enjoying all the fruits of everyone's labor.
0: So when. Um... I'll get to this question in a second. That reminded me. One one of my great story you told about one of your, I don't know what to call it. It's not a trick. I don't know what to call it. You you had told me a story when you were at Kingwood that the coaches on the sideline, actually y'all had a competition on the sideline, right? And it sounded like you actually maybe even kept score during the course of a game for any coaching adjustment or coaching change that you made, right? Yeah. You, you, You potentially as a coach, Right, would, would score a goal, and and y'all were got competitive on the sideline as coaches, right? Was it did, did I recount any of that correctly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it was uh, Coach arcury uh, and uh, who I don't know if he thought of it or we came up together or how it came up, but every coach was required to get a goal, and that could be if you're the faceoff guy figuring something out, some trickery, reading something right to convert, you know, to to have an impact on the game, a defensive whatever recognizing what's going on. And you know, so you know, say, oh, that's your goal. That's your goal. You know, whatever. But you know, it's 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 encouraging. You know, partic- obviously we're all participating, but it's just uh, you know, we want to make sure that we're all always engaged in everything. Yeah, yeah. So so obviously, uh, you know, co- coach whoever comes up and says, listen, these guys are doing this. Why don't we try doing this? And then and the players get buy-in. The players might have an idea. The players have an idea. Let's let's hear it. You know. Uh, anyway, just keeping—it's not just about a template and hammering, you know, square peg, round hole kind of thing. It's about let's 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 always be flexible enough to to, to try different things. Yeah. So yes, that was it, was it was. Every coach was responsible for a goal in the game. And the other joke was like, as soon as we got a goal, I'm like, that's my goal. You know, that's mine. And they're like, that's not yours. I'm like, I, I've been coaching that kid for six years. That's yeah. my goal. You
0: know? <laughs> so when you. This is interesting because I asked I asked some of these same questions of Platt, right? When he when he followed followed you at Kingwood, right? So when when you landed at Kingwood, what was the state of the relationship with the lacrosse organization and the school or school district? That's all. It's
1: always been the same. I mean, listen. Uh, I foolishly or naively, as soon as I got there, I set up meetings with. Uh, the uh, Umble ISD athletic director with the school, and I went in. I met with the you know the head football coach and all that stuff, and they all took a good game. But the bottom line, at the end of the day, football is the only thing that mattered. And uh, you know, the minute it starts raining, they cancel our practice. And believe me, I had plenty of. You know, I've had coaches coming out, coming out of the high school and yelling, screaming at us, yelling at players, you know, just talking crap to the ones that played football and lacrosse. It was, you know, it was definitely the, the standard relationship that you would imagine. It got better. Um, it got better over time. Um, we had, uh, so Will Sterner, who's still coaching with Platt over there, and uh, again, Coach Curie who had been a longtime teacher and had worked with a lot of these guys before. Uh, they had relationships with them. Um, So that helped soften it a little bit, but it was never going to be to the point where, you know, football wasn't going to be the priority there, you know, that kind of thing. That being said, we were lucky enough in Kingwood, we had the KFL fields, the insperity fields. Yeah, I mean, we got we have three beautiful lit fields over there that we get to use every year starting November 1st or whatever it is, December 1st. So, I mean, I really can't complain. You know, we had a, a lot of facilities and a lot of support in the community. We had a lot more resources than a lot of people do have, so I really can't complain about it, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the interesting part for me, and I've, I've dealt with a couple different school districts, right, in this relation, trying to develop and maintain this, a functional relationship with the school district. My experience has been, it's always very uneven, right? And what I mean by that is, the, you you need a lot more, right, than, than the school district you're interested in giving you, cares about, you know, wants to provide, right? so. It's, it's, it's a very unequal relationship and it it's, it's not healthy i, I it, you know what i'm saying it just it, it, I, you to your point you almost on occasion i felt like i was grovelling right for for what felt like you know kind of basic human rights as it relates yeah. to to using a field or you know trying to trying to get access to to kids time or things like that it just it was just such a bummer because you're just begging and pleading for just simple things that seem like they should be no-brainers, right?
1: Right. Well, so I, I was, you know, I, I, especially when we'd have parents, you know, moving up to the high school program, and they'd they'd say the same thing every year. This is this is bullshit, you know. We pay taxes and we pay the same amount of money, and they'd they'd want to go storm in there and talk to the school. And I'm like, listen, it's not going to help. It doesn't. It's not going to help. The bottom line is that we got to focus on what we do have, and we had a very strong, supportive organization, and we raised a lot of money. <laughs> you know, that's the bottom line: is we had access to a lot of money. Not as much as other people, but we raised plenty of money every year, and we were successful. You know, you have a, a program that we were going to the playoffs every year. We went to the states five, four out of five out of six years. I mean, we had kids going off to college to play. I mean, we had to stand, step back and, and look at all the successes we had, and not just try to fight the same battles. You know, it's going to change eventually. You know, we're going to apply pressure where we can, but we don't need to be smashing our face against the wall with the school district. You know, it's eventually to be—you know—it'll be a school sport, and then it handles itself. You know, there's rules to all that. But for now, listen, we're doing great. Let's just keep raising money and being successful. You know, uh, it's hard for the school to keep ignoring you when you're going to the city championships every year. You know. So, um, not like they cared necessarily, not like they would come to the games. But the point was that the, the lacrosse team was it was successful. So that's that's what we're doing. That's how we're doing our part, not just by arguing with them all the time. You know.
0: Yeah, and and it, 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 I've had on two occasions dealing with school districts. You know, it's, you know, you sometimes you bring unwanted attention to yourself too, right? By mm-hmm. by, yeah. you know beating the drum on a particular issue or or fighting for something. And because there's not a formal structure in place, there's not a, you know, there's not that, that organization, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't even think of the word I'm looking for, but you understand what I'm saying. There's not a, there's not a formal structure in place. So, you know, some of the rulings and decisions and access can be a little bit arbitrary at times if they want it to be. And there's really no recourse.
1: Yeah, and, right? and the thing is too that on the on the on the flip side, you know, when we we'd have an incident or there'd be a fight or you know, one of my last year we had a, uh, one of our guys just absolutely clobbered a kid in Dallas, put the kid in the hospital, and uh, the kid's parents made a big stink, and all of a sudden here comes the school coming to me, right? You know, and I'm like, oh, now you want to, yeah, yeah. want to have a relationship, you know? Yeah. Being, <laughs> Whatever. I mean, it turns out he's a star football player. I didn't hear are the You're the one that's made this kid into a, you know, hitman. But uh, you know, whatever. You know. But the bottom line is that you know, I mean, to have a, a successful developmental youth and high school program, the the formula is always the same, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the school. It has to do with the parents, organizations, and the development of coaches. You know, when uh, you, if you have money, but if you don't have coaches, it's not going to work. If you have coaches. Uh, you don't have money. You're not going to have coaches for very long. I mean, you can have, you know, the, you can have a lot of super supportive dads, even dads with lacrosse experience, but that's only going to work to a certain point because kids, you know, you can only coach your kids so far. Right. They're not. You know, they, they need other. They need other coaches. This is why I encouraged our kids. Like some coaches don't let their kids play travel programs, so they don't want them playing box lacrosse in the fall. And I'm like, "Yo, play box lacrosse. I don't care if you come back. You know." Whatever, cross checking everybody, you'll you'll get out of it again. You know, I want you to go play for Coach Block. I want you to go to the Strake's summer camp. I want you to go play with Platt, or you know, or Coach Laley, or whoever. Go play 3D with with Nick Williams or whoever. You know, um, I, exposure to more coaching is better. But the bottom line, when it comes to a developmental program, you have to have coaches who are who are invested in the program. You're going to have parents who are invested in the program. You got to have money. You got to find some money somewhere, and you got to build a, a culture that people can identify. Just like you can identify a team when they're on the field, you know, without even seeing their uniforms, you you can tell you know, that's that's the Woodlands or uh, that's Kingwood or that's you know you have playing styles, you know, right. you have philosophies, this kind of stuff. You have to build an identity as a program. You just can't shoot from the hip every year it's just it's too 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 much chaos
0: how has you know, you mentioned you know coaching and, and and money right is two critical factors in all this how how has Kingwood been so successful for so long right and i don't mean on the field right you know the the the, the 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 that's gonna wax and wane right but the organization and the success of the organization and the ability to attract good coaches right that's been pretty consistent for a long time in kingwood right what what's the trick
1: well, I mean, when I when I was there, I mean, when I first started there, they, uh, you know, whatever the budget was, um, they had an emphasis on it. they had a board member who's in charge of fundraising or whatever, and uh, you know, uh, and then ended up making two people in charge of fundraising. We had fund uh, we had fundraisers, uh, two or three fundraisers per year, uh, plus you know the membership dues were you know not the not the cheapest in Houston. Um, but, you know, we had ways to raise money. I mean, even if it was a $2,000 fundraiser here and there, whatever. Plus, they had the employee, employee matching programs. There was one parent who was in charge of just finding out who everybody worked for. And if that, if that company had a matching program, and that alone would raise thousands of dollars a year. Um, you know, and then we would have our off-season fundraisers and this kind of stuff. Um, but, again, it's a, it's a lot easier to raise money when you're when – you're, we had a big club as well. You know, we were bringing up 25 kids a year from middle school. You know, uh, average year in Kingwood, we'd have 100 kids, 80 to 100 kids at the high school. You know, uh, for most of the years I was there, um, we had three teams. You know, we'd have a varsity team and two JV teams. Right. Uh, and then w- one year we had uh, two varsities. You know, we had a D1 and a D2, and then we had a JV, um, that kind of stuff. So, you know, with that many people, you know, uh, the money's go. you know, there's a lot more money. When you you only have 30 kids and you're trying to split them into two teams, uh, it's hard. And, you know, again, coaches – same thing, you know, I mean, we had a lot of coaches in Kingwood and, you know, there was, you know, we had to raise money for it. And the other thing is, to, again, Kingwood is, is is special because it's kind of like this little isolated pocket, you know. You go up the highway one way, you're in the woodlands. You go up the other highway the other way and you're in Kingwood. Kingwood's all by itself. There's nothing else out there. There's a freaking lake to one side and there's like, you know, trailer parks north of it or whatever, you know. So, you know, it's isolated so you're not going to get somebody to come from the city necessarily to coach out there. You kind of got to get your local people. Um, the except, the two exceptions being um, Jeremy Platt, who replaced me, who drives a billion miles right. now going to Kingwood and back, uh, and Taylor Brooks, who's at Atasca Cedar, who was my assistant coach at Kingwood. He'd be coming from the city as well. Um, but again, that's—I'm uh, not saying that he would just do it for money. But we had to pay him. It wasn't like you know, Taylor's going to you know just drive up there. You know, we—you know—he was—he's a, a good coach, and we paid him to come there. And you know, that's—that's that's the whole point of having a little money in your program is to be able to hire coaches. There's a, there's, a, there's always the argument with parents too, like they think that uh, a coach making five thousand dollars for a season is ridiculous. And if you start doing the math, it's like the guy's making like thirty-nine cents an hour. What are you, right. what are you talking about? He's right. got a—he's got a day job. You know, why, you know, I mean, this kind of, you got to put it in perspective. These, these people are making $150,000 a year and they're scoffing at some guy making $5,000 a season, you know? <laughs> so, so, not in Kingwood, you know, in Kingwood, they, you know, again, we recognize that, uh, there's a benefit to having paid coaches, you know, and not getting excessive about it and not, not hiring, you know, 10 coaches per team, but, you know, finding the right people. Well,
0: but there's, there's,
1: you know, I, I've always contended having been on
0: both sides of the coaching equation you know, hiring coaches, been on the board, right? Trying to administer organizations and then also actually being a coach. There's something to have in a transaction there, a financial transaction. Mm-hmm. You kind of set the expectation. Hey, this is, this is you're an employee. There's a financial transaction. These are when practices are. This is when you're going to be here, right? Mm-hmm. We expect you to be at these meetings. You know, so often it sounds like when there's, I hear stories when there's volunteer coaches and there's not that transaction, Right. Ah, eh, they ditched a practice. It's not a big deal right they're, they're they're just a volunteer, right? or they ditched a meeting, you know they had well, a conflict, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's something to be said for that transaction even if it's not a huge transaction, right? But there's well, something a, to be and said it's for the same with, transaction.
1: with players too. I tell you when you raise your uh, your yearly uh membership, your, your your fees for a club to like $800 or something for a player, <laughs> all of a sudden the parents are going to make sure the kids are not missing either. Because, right. like, you know, listen, if you miss a practice, if it's, if it's unexcused absence, you're not playing in the next game. That was always my policy. You're, you're just not playing in the next game. I don't care if the next game's a state championship. You're not playing. And then, you know, all of a sudden there's like, you know, accountability. And of course, you know, there's going to be a kid that misses a, you know, whatever. You know, No big deal. But all of a sudden the absence has become a lot less. Especially when the parents are like, they're not going to see their kid play in a game. And they're paying eight hundred dollars or whatever it
0: is. Was was there ever in a situation like that? And I'm not. Maybe it didn't even occur. But in a situation like that, where you know there was discipline levied against a player, did you ever run into a situation where that parent went to the board and said, "By God, this isn't right"? And then did you ever feel pressure from the board, or no. was there a hard line there? And even if they had gone to the board, the board would have just kind of told them to go pound sand.
1: No, we always had a great relationship. The board took care of stuff off the field, and I took care of stuff on the field. And the board was there. There was oversight, certainly. Um, but I was always very transparent with stuff. And we had fair and clear rules, you know. Um, certainly there was problems over the years, not not many. There's the certain run-ins with certain parents. There's always going to be those. Right. Uh, accusations of favoritism and whatever else. Um, but the, the, the bottom line was that the, the, the rules are clear, you know. Uh, and uh, you know, listen, we bent the rules. You know, you have a player who missed a practice because you know whatever. All right, you're not playing in the next game. You know, um, this kind of stuff. Or not. The, not. You're not going to start. You're not going to play in the first half. You know, it was kind of an infraction. You know, you you missed a practice, but you should have. You told somebody. You should have told me. Whatever. We figured it out. But you know, the the key is the consistency. You know, we can't have. Well, you know, listen, it was our our star player, so it's, you know, we got to play him. Right. You know? We, we stayed away from those situations, you know, and we we're very careful, you know, to tell people, you know, you're not going to play, you are know, not going to, you're not going to play. It's not that important. Uh, the a game is not that important. What's again organizational structure and culture is everything, because it controls all the other moving parts. And we're not going to we're not going to you know destabilize everything so that one kid could play in a game. And and you can also do that when you have it. Listen, we always had teams that are pretty deep. You know, it's not like we only had that one star player, you know, we had good players, but listen, if uh, you know, I know one one of my three excellent attack men can't play. It's not the end of the world, you know, you know, so. um, How much,
0: how much your time, and I asked this the same question of of Rich Moses, because we talked a lot about culture up at Highland park. How much of your time as the head coach was spent on, you know, practice, practice planning, executing practice versus, you know, Working you working with your coaches, organizing them, helping them get prepared, and how, and culture, right? Those are those are the three major aspects I can think of. What, how was your time spread across those?
1: Well, I was lucky enough that you know lacrosse was my full time gig when I was in Kingwood. You know, between the academy and my private lessons and the travel teams and the summer coaching and everything else, it's all I did was lacrosse. So I had a lot of time prepare the coaching staff. We worked on the we. Everybody had input into the practice plans. Uh, and then it was always some uh, adjustment every day at practice depending on whatever variable came up, but we always had an idea of what was going on. A lot of times uh, we would change it uh, based on what had happened the day before, if there had been a game, uh, etc. As far as the head coach goes, I found that over the years in Kingwood, uh, I was coaching less. I mean, I was try to empower the assistant coaches. And, then you know, you got to remember, the assistant coaches want their own thing too. You know, the defensive coach wants to control the defense. The offensive coach wants to have, you know, and you can't just keep overriding people all the time or getting in their way. So you have to give them ownership uh, of whatever their area of responsibility is. So I would take uh, overall team things. I would talk about, you know, general... You know, uh, this is how we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to play offense. This is how we're going to play defense. This is what we're going to do in transition. You know, as an example, we ne- we don't ever sub in transition. We we never sub in transition. Offense or defense, we don't sub. We don't we don't sub until we're settled. You know, little things, how we do our clears, um, whatever, and then let the defensive coaches. Uh, the defensive coach handle actual defensive stuff, and then whatever. So my participation in the practice is I, I would have my drills, but the defensive coach would have his drills, and the offensive coach would have his drills, et cetera. Uh, and I find that you get a lot, lot lot more buy-in from the coaches. And, of course, we all have a say in what each other is doing. Right. And if something's not going right, we're going to put a stop to it. But the point is giving people ownership. Otherwise, it's just me coaching the whole practice again with a bunch of guys watching, yeah, you yeah. know, and with uh, getting their say in when they can uh, plus, we would break up. You know, we'd have different groups going the whole thing, but we'd have a lot more variety in our practices that way. But to, to answer your question, again, a lot of my time was just managing the whole system as opposed to just running practices and that kind of stuff.
0: Did you, you know, the 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 coaching carousel here in Houston in the off season is seems like it's borderline legendary. <laughs> you know, every, every off season there's this churn of coaches, right, and. I wonder you were at Kingwood long enough, right? And y'all were successful and had a had a had a great organization. Surely you faced some of the challenges of that turnover with your assistant coaches, right? How how did you how did you deal with that and maintain that consistency over time?
1: Well, our problem was a good one, uh, and a positive one. Um, again, we had a, mostly Kingwood alumni and local guys, um, but when we lost coaches, uh, well, for the most part, it was good. We had one very unfortunate incident you know Gary Patton when we were at the uh, Austin tournament in 2000 I want to say it's 2012 uh, he'd got hit in the head with a lacrosse ball ended up having a stroke uh, and uh, could can't coach anymore right um, it's gotten a lot better uh, but you know whatever um, Justin Summers who had been an assistant coach there when I got there and was with me for uh, I don't know, two or three years um, and he he was always every year he coached the youth team as well as he was the JV head coach. Uh, one of the uh, he's just one of those really natural, fun leadership you know coaches. The kids all love him right away, and he's just he's just a fun coach. He's, he's a great guy. He's you know a great guy, great coach, whatever. Uh, but he was living down in Tascosa, and there was a couple guy he you know meet some kids, and they'd they'd get him into the the Kingwood. Um, Youth League every year, there'd be some kids from Atascosita, and eventually Justin's like, you know, listen, I'm, uh, I am got, got some parents who have some, you know, some of the kids that he coached in middle school, and they're getting ready to go to high school, and they want to start an um high school team. So, again, Justin was our JV head coach and, like, our eighth grade coach, and all of a sudden he left to start the Atascosita program. But from a Kingwood perspective, that only helps us. We want a team that close to us, right. and there had been a task to see the kids in our program for years and years, long before I got there. And Justin going there was—it's you know still a net positive gain for our area. So as a program, we helped where we could. I certainly coached with him a little bit, some clinics here and there. I'm sure we gave him some equipment, uh, whatever you know infrastructure we could help with they played at our fields they scrimmaged with us all the time they had joint practices with us um you know so yeah but well, that's that's how we lost justin
0: but how did uh, you i mean and i'm sure that's not the only example but how did you accommodate for that and
1: i guess what interests me is
0: it almost sounds like in kingwood you had reached this critical mass where you had alumni coming back right it sounds like the coaching the coaching ranks had there were quite a few alumni mixed in there that's interesting because you know, we, we don't see a lot of that locally where you see boys, you know, go off to college, maybe play in college, and then they come back and recycle back through the coaching ranks for their for their for the, the high school they went to, right? It sounds well, like geograph- you had some success get,
1: Geographically, there's not a lot of choices if you live it up in Kingwood, if you move back from college or whatever. Um, but also, you know, we were doing well. You know, uh, we're, when you're a successful program, if you're if you're alumni of a program and you're living in town and they're doing well and they got a spot. Of course you want to be out there. I mean, again, we're going to the playoffs every year and we're, we're having a good time. We got like 80 kids out there. You know, we're, we're banging on all cylinders. Um, so yeah, that we always had alumni. Will Sterner coaches, uh, he teaches at, uh, Kingwood high school. He's an alumni. He teaches that he became the school sponsor teacher over there and he's coaching. So that's, you know, Nick Williams, also alumni, uh, before he, he eventually went on to Memorial and now he's at uh, Cumberland Academy. Um, But, yeah, we had these guys coming through the program. Mike Block was coaching at Strake, but he lived in Kingwood. So he would come by the fields all the time, especially, like, for our youth league. You know, you never heard – you never saw more happy kids in your life then the lights at KFL fields, and Mike Block would pull up and walk into the fields. I mean, the kids just go bananas. They love him. You know, he's the loudest guy on earth, and he just starts—he just walks on the field, starts just starts coaching. He doesn't care who's doing what. He's just yelling at kids to do stuff, and they, you know, they just start going bananas. You know? <laughs> so we have a, a lot of great people involved. But then again, yeah, like another another example: Taylor Brooks. After Justin left, Taylor Brooks came up and filled a hole for a couple of years. He coached with me as an offensive coach, run the box, and we had a great time. But same thing, you know. I mean, how long can you hold on to a good coach? Right. You know, Atascosita was looking for a head coach, and you know he was coaching down there, doing clinics, and he was doing a lot of private lessons. And uh, off he went to to Atascocita. Again, you can't you can't be mad at a guy for uh, you know for doing exactly what you would do. You know what I would do. I mean, he got his own program. Why? Why? Uh, how long you want to be my offensive coordinator when you can go be the head coach in at Atascocita? Now look at him now. Look at the now. Yeah, yeah. was like the first year. You know, we'd uh, you know, we we we'd maul them. You know, I mean, our, our, our you know, whatever. I mean, now they're they're competitive. I mean, it's it's only been a couple of years. It's only been three or four years. Uh, you know, since well, and i, got, I left.
0: And he's got huge numbers at the youth level. It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, the and the numbers the, they re, have. And the reason why he does where there was none. And again, Justin uh, gets a lot of the credit, and, and obviously Taylor gets the credit. Is yeah, you know, is creating a culture, right? And uh, you know, having a strong uh, coaching personality, a positive uh, personality, and, and making that positive culture, and having a lot of success, um, and having kids who are just into it because that's how it spreads. You know, I mean, Atascosa, at there was no lacrosse there for a long time, and then all of a sudden, you have two very good, you know, uh, charismatic coaches with a lot of experience go down there, and they can just whip it up. You know, uh, before you know it, they not only that; they coach them up. And, you know, they, they have the knowledge to, to make the kids better and put their stamp on it, too. They're not just doing traditional stuff down there. I mean, they're, they're playing good lacrosse yeah. with their own particular style, you know? So, I mean, it's out of nowhere. I mean, th- that's crazy. Four years ago, five years ago, there was no lacrosse there, you know, in that area.
0: You know, the, when uh, I think I may have mentioned this when I talked to, to Taylor, but it's worth mentioning because and, and, you're, you're touching on it. The first time I saw a... Uh, Taylor uh, an Atascocita team coached by Taylor Brooks. I think I, I I don't remember the context. It was a scrimmage. You know, it wasn't a regular season game, but I, there there was a scrimmage. And even though it was just a, a scrimmage, probably in the fall, right? His boys all came out. Yeah, they had their helmets all matched, right? Mm-hmm. Their their unis were sharp, right? They 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 looked the part, right? Because so often you see kind of you know the bad news bears the mix and match helmets and stuff, and right. here they are a team. I bet it was probably what their, their third season or something like second or third season, whatever it was, right? And he, he had already made a, uh, an impression on that team and already had them pretty buttoned up, even just in a false scrimmage, right? They looked, they looked the part, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then I mean they're gonna come. Out. I, I I haven't seen his team this year or last year, but I can tell you, I know what's gonna happen right now. I walk out there before a game. They're gonna get together and they're gonna do a nice organized warm up, right? They're gonna run around. They're gonna do the stretching. However they're gonna do it, they're gonna be talking. They're gonna be you know get their mind in the game ahead of time. You know they're not gonna be goofing off like other teams do. Right? That's, you know, I mean. That's part of the organizational process, you know. It's just the minute they get there, they're, ch- you know, we used to say it all the time. You know, you're punching in. You got your uni- you got your work clothes on. You got your uniform on. You're punching in. You're at work for the minute you get here. You can leave all the rest on the side. We got things that we do. This is going to be time for a little chitter-chatter, you know. When you're stretching and stuff, you can keep it low, talking about it, whatever you want to talk about. But we're doing everything the right way from the minute we get here. Start thinking about what's going to happen, what we're here to do. But – same thing, you know. I mean, again, that's part of the culture. You have to, you know, when you're building a, a program, it's, it's a lot of it is just, you know, format from the beginning. So one of the things that I did, you know, for years, and I know Taylor does it, and I know, you know, a lot, a lot of people control methods of practice is I, I, I say sideline, they all go to the sideline. Everybody goes to the sideline, and they're all facing me on the sideline, and that's where we talk. We always talk in the sideline. I don't bring them into this part of the field. That we always go to the sideline, you know. So then, you know, if they're goofing off a of practice, sideline. All right guys, listen. What are we going to do? Let's go back out there. Let's do, do it again. You know, t- uh, minute later. All right, sideline, you know. And they go back to the sideline whatever, and then people get tired of running to the sideline over and over again until you have a couple team leaders start stepping up like, guys, we used stop screwing around. We're going to be on the sideline before you know, it, whatever. But it's also, you know, that's where we start practice. is on the sideline, you know. Everyone's standing there, alphabetical order, whatever it is, number order, and that's where we go when we want to talk, and that's where we end practice. You know, there's just little structural things throughout your practice that actually help everyone relax and keep everything in order and it's not chaos chaos is you know it's, it's too much for some people yeah, you know? yeah. Who, gotta, gotta um, have structure
0: who else is in your in your coaching family tree that's still here in houston
1: well block uh Platt, obviously in kingwood which was a, a big score you know um so i'm i can't tell you how happy i am after you know i put a lot of time a lot of time and uh blood sweat and tears and you know, I love that program. The, the fact that uh, that Jeremy uh, took that program over is uh, more important to me than you know. I think, I think he told you the story when you interviewed him that uh, I think that we were at – we were in Budapest or something. We were at the 2016 uh, European Championships. Yeah. And uh, Mike Block had initially taken the job and he decided not to. And they were calling me for suggestions. And I was like, oh, I just happen to be sitting here with uh, Jeremy Platt who's leaving Kincaid. I think it will be a perfect fit or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, you know, so obviously Platt, um, Nick Williams was the assistant. I, I I said he's at Cumberland. He's at Memorial. Uh, I don't think Justin's coaching anymore. Taylor's at a task of Uh, Will Sterner still over there. Um, uh, that's it. You know, I don't, uh, I think, uh, Andrew Arcuri is, uh, working at seven lakes, but I think he's coaching wrestling. um, I don't know. I coached a lot of a lot of guys, especially with the the, the with I coached Third Coast for a couple summers.
0: Yeah, I remember. So my uh, you know, my son Dylan, right. was, there was where where Third Coast was like right at its peak. It was such a flash in the pan, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there was the one summer where it was really at its peak, um, and it it was a good time. He had a blast, and I remember. Yeah. Uh, I think we went to Syracuse that summer. Which was a blast. That was a good time. But yeah, I remember seeing your face around Third Coast. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's where me and Taylor first coached together. And oh, right really? away we Oh yeah, we hit it off. We had a bromance. And I was like, Man, you remind me of me. Young and good looking. Come on, <laughs> come on, coach with me. Let's and then like when they were divvying up the teams for Third Coast, we're like, We wanna to coach together.
0: <laughs> I didn't realize that's where y'all met. Yeah, that's
1: interesting. I think we had met we had probably met Somewhere around, you know, town, you know, lacrosse stuff here and there. Well, he was coaching at uh, Houston Christian. Um, uh, or Houston Episcopal, Christian,
0: or he was at EHS with John, wasn't he? Yeah, Episcopal.
1: Episcopal yeah, 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 yeah. He was there, so obviously I, I knew him from that. Um, you know, I knew him from you know beating the crap out of Episcopal. Um, but not like it. So yeah, side note. Did you, I haven't tell you about the first time I met John Parati?
0: Oh no, this is going to be good.
1: You were there probably. It was at one of those greater Houston youth lacrosse meetings. And I, I sat – it might have been one of my first ones. And I sat down, and someone was talking, whoever it was, the whoever's in charge at the time. And then uh, the guy next to me, who ends up being John, he pipes up. And uh, as soon as he was done speaking, he, he looked at me, and I said, ugh – what kind of accent is that? Are you from like Baltimore? <laughs> and he was like, oh my God, you're from Long Island or whatever. And I was like, oh, stop talking. Look. <laughs> you're killing me with your accent.
0: That's a, so, you know, um, so John officiates now. I don't, I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. Man, he's a great lacrosse official. Oh, I imagine. Yeah. He's tremendous. Um oh, yeah. He's a great coach, too. Yeah. I mean, he's just got such a great history with the game and a great sensibility about the game, right? And he's just a terrific official, man. He's what we need. We need some of these these older coaches or even parents, right, that have been involved in in administering the the, the game at different levels. As you get older and you're looking for something to do, man, go be an official, man. We need good officials, and he's a terrific one.
1: Yeah, well, You know, when I moved back here to Florida, I um, I coached for one season at St. Pete High School, which is like five blocks from my house. Um, But it's still club. It's actually it was club, and now uh, when I was coach, it was transitioning. Uh, Again, yet another time, it was transitioning. Um, But here, it's like in the county where I live, uh, which is Pinellas County, across the bay from Tampa. It's totally like fifteen years ago. It's like a time warp. Uh, They don't want to pay coaches. Uh, the parents really aren't. I mean, they're they're kind of into it, but they, you know, I was trying to explain to them. The, the parents here are nice, and a lot of them are actually friends of mine I play club ball with who have kids. Uh, but like in Tampa, it's 10 years, 15 years ahead. That's like where I coached at Tampa Jesuit and that kind of stuff. But over here, it's still very grassroots. There's maybe six club teams, and uh, I couldn't do it. I coached for one season. I had a great time. We did very well in the club league, whatever. I did the summer team. But it's just like you know, I, I can't go back to that after being in Kingwood, you know. I mean, uh, after being in that, you know, having so mu- so much going for us to start over again at a at a, at a club level, it's just uh, I just don't have it in me anymore. So, you know, I mean, so, I, I loved coaching the kids, and the, the kids are great, and the parents are great, but the infrastructure is just not there. So
0: know? how how did you end up back in Florida? What?
1: Um, well, after we. Uh, after our, my last season at Kingwood my six years I said uh, I had told my wife you know I agreed to six years and so I told her that you know if she I said I you know I could renew my contract she's like no I'm ready to go uh, <laughs> she she had lots of great friends in Texas and she loved it but it was time time to move on uh, I was I was coaching at the uh, European Championships in uh, in Hungary in 2016 after my last season at Kingwood and then we spent the summer traveling and kind of figuring out where we want to go and I said, listen, you know, I kind of picked, a, I picked Texas based on, you know, we went went to Texas based on my lacrosse career. I said, you know, it's your turn, wherever you want to go. And she's, she said she wanted to come back to Florida. We had lived here from the time we were 22 to the time we were, uh, the time I was 23 to the time I was 37. So we spent a good chunk of our life here, you know. Um, so we have family here. My mom lives here. Her sister lives here. My aunt, my sister, you know, plus loads of our friends, all of our friends from our 20s to our 30s. I mean, come on. So we came back here and it's, uh, it's fantastic. You know, we live in downtown St. Pete, which is up and coming. Cool. And, you know, it's hip. There's uh five microbreweries within five blocks of my house. You know, there's all kinds of cool stuff, but, uh, so, yeah, did... so it was my wife's choice, you know, and I'm, I'm happy for it. So when you, when you landed there,
0: did you immediately seek out a coaching opportunity?
1: Well, yeah. Well, friends of mine, again, you know, friends of mine have uh, kids that play and they, they me up pretty quick. They're looking for a coach. Um, that's how I got my job too. I actually only went on one job interview. Um, and it was horrible, you know, without getting too much details, like some 20 something year old kid was interviewing me and he was doing all these interviewing techniques. He's like, all right, I want you to pretend that you're selling me a-. and I was like, nah, no, what, what, no, no, whatever. Anyway. So I left the interview. I, I had to, I finished the interview, uh, whatever. And I went to my friend's house, my friend Kirk's house. And Kirk is a, uh, pot stamp guy. You know, he, uh, Grew up outside of Syracuse and played at Potsdam, and he's a guy who used to coach with the Tampa Jesuit. We used to run the Tampa men's team together for years. So I went to his house and you know, I walked in his garage. He's in his garage working on his motorcycle or whatever, you know. And I walk and I grab a beer out of his fridge. I'm like, "Job interviews suck." And he goes, "Oh, I get you a job." So he got me a job where he works. He's like a director of a, a construction company, and. Other lacrosse friends of ours worked there too.
0: <laughs> oh wow! So,
1: yeah, so I got right in with my lacrosse friends. I got a job through my lacrosse connections, and I got a right away. They hooked me up with a coaching the you know, high school club team. I kind of fell right back into it. Like, hey, you're gonna play on the masters team, and it was kind of like I never left, you know. But uh,
0: so how did you? You said that the St. Pete's team was a, was a club team, but it, it's a sanctioned sanctioned sport, right? In it Florida, is, it
1: is now, as of this year, of this last year.
0: So it it's came and it's come and gone a
1: couple times. No, no, it wasn't sanctioned in this county until the year before last. Oh, time. wow.
0: Okay, so yeah. it's... when I got
1: back here, it was still club. It was sanctioned across the bay. A lot of counties were sanctioned, but this one wasn't. <clears throat> they just keep voting against it. It's crazy. It's like the, you know, I don't know why they were voting against it. But yeah, so it's not
0: it's not a it's not sanctioned at the state level. It's sanctioned in each
1: county. Yeah, each school district. Each school district. Yeah, they can they can they can they can opt in or out. Oh wow! Because you know, once once they opt in, then they got to fund it, you know.
0: Right.
1: So there has to be they they have to be participation numbers. So the clubs have to show they have participation numbers, and there's a process they go through, and then so they started with four teams the first year, then they expanded it to six teams, six high schools rather, not teams. So each high school has to have boys and girls when they go, otherwise they don't go, they stay club. What? Wow, that's interesting. Does that does that
0: kind of school district by school district model, I mean, what challenges does that present?
1: No, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So basically you have all these parents who, all right, so as an example, say you have the St. Pete Club team. You got parents and kids from seven different high schools, you know, playing on there or whatever. And everyone's all, you know, St. Pete, St. Pete, St. Pete. Then one St. Pete High School, went. they got sanctioned. And the other one's like, "Hey, what the hell about us?" You know, and then before you know it, they're like, oh, screw you!" You know, whatever. <laughs> and then you know, <laughs> you know, half the team goes. Play. Then, then the other ones are trying to start clubs, and then they're fighting each other. And then they're, you know, they're arguing. And before you know it, you know, I'm not saying that's exactly the way it worked over here, but it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. And then. All of a sudden, there's kids that have no team to play for because there's no there's not enough critical mass for the club team players to still have a club team because now there's three high schools around that have it, right. and you can only play for the high school. So in Texas, the way if you remember the way it was is if if your if your high school didn't have a team, you could play for the next closest team. Right. Right. And it was a D two team. Right. You know, if if there's no D two team, you could play for. You had to get a waiver. You know, but they didn't, they didn't make any uh, any kind of stuff like that, any arrangements like that around here. They just left the kids out in the dark, in the cold. You're done if you don't have a team. Sorry, start a team.
0: Wow, which is wild because, like you said, it, it, the the club t- the club team would reach critical mass at a at a high school, right? Yeah. Then they would peel off, and then there would just be this this baggage left behind of these kids. Yeah, like
1: six kids from the neighboring high school, you know, and they're like, "What about us?" they like, "Go start a team." Like we don't have enough people. They're like, "All right, There you." Nothing he can do about it. You how know? is
0: that? How is that healthy?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's in. But you know what's going to happen? It's still going to. It's still going to end up growing. You know, it's the the thing is that it can be sloppy. In Texas, it was very neat. You know, it was very neat the way it happened. You know, the way the the growth happens in Texas, it's very organized. You know, but here it's like you know, especially in, like where I am, it's geographically challenging because you got just they're all spread. They're all spread out in this county. You know, but you know what happened was kids started switching high schools. That's that's what happened over here. People, parents started moving their kids from one high school to another because there's all ways to do that as well. And a lot of the schools here that right. went are private schools. So all of a sudden, you see the best players that got left out in the cold are now in private school the next year playing for that team. You know, so yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I'm yeah. I'm 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 blown away by the the idea that relatively speaking, Texas is organized and neat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it is. I mean, it really it really is. It, there's a listen, athletics are super important to people in Texas. Um, and there's a lot of money and there's a lot of parental involvement. And all that boils down to just there's a lot of organization in lacrosse in, in the Houston area, in Texas in general. It's, a, it's, a, it's very organized. Now, in, for the vast majority of Florida, it's the same. You know, There's a lot of great teams in Florida and there's a lot of great organizations. There's tons of teams. Just that it's still these outlier counties. A lot of them are rural, but this this one, like Pinellas County, where I am, is kind of the exception because we're in ta- right across the bay from Tampa. We got St. Pete and Clearwater in our county.
0: Right.
1: Um, and I'm I'm not trying to you know make the program here sound uh, be negative about it. It's just that they're the victims of 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 being left behind, of not going school sanctioned when they could have fifteen years ago. You know, no one wants to no one wants to go school sanctioned when their kid is going to be affected by it. You know? Right, Nobody right. You know, you're. We're, we're about to win a club champ. We, we think we can win a club championship next year. Maybe we should go school sanction the year after that, you know? I mean, right. nobody wants to screw their kid out of whatever, you know, so.
0: Yeah, and that's the same problem everywhere, right? Nobody wants to make long-term strategic decisions at the expense of their kid's winning season this season, right? Exactly,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: So you you coached at St. Pete for just the one season?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Are you playing anymore?
1: Nah, nah. Come on, dude. I'm 49, man. I don't wanna be. I don't wanna break anything. Although all my friends who are my age are all going back this year. My the men's team that we played for, that they've all been playing for, even when I was gone, won the Florida League last year. So and the and our Masters team had won the, the uh, had gone when at the 2010 Worlds had won the the, the the Masters Festival and that kind of stuff. We've had some success with our. Our club team has a lot of great guys. A lot of great players come come down here, you know. They're tired of Florida, whatever. Um, so our masters team is really, you know, it's a bunch of great guys. So a lot of my friends are getting back into it. Guys have been retired a couple of years, and they've been trying to drag me into it. and I'm, All I can think about is walking around, you know, with like my, you know, the broken knee, like a cast, you know, or you know kind on of crutches, you know. Um, so had, uh, the, a,
0: so I guess the question I have for you now, though, is, I mean, you, it seems like you're still passionate about the game and I'm willing to bet as a result of that, you still have a coaching edge, right? So yeah. are, are you going to scratch that again?
1: Nah. No. No? I mean, no, I'll tell you what, The, the when I re- retired from Ireland, uh, I, I kind of put myself into a box. So I was the head coach of Ireland 2016, 2017, 2000, for the World Championships in 2018. That was my gig. And I ended up, after the team selection, getting ready, 2008, getting ready to go to the Worlds in Israel, I, uh, you know, a lot going on here with work and everything else, and coaching internationally is not cheap. It yeah, costs yeah. a lot of money, and my whole gig has been you know, I had a whole nother it's about fundraising. I think Platt mentioned something about that. That's the reason why I brought him is because he was coaching at Kincaid, and that's, uh, that is partially true. <laughs> um it's mainly true (laughs) Uh, it's hard it's it's hard it's easy to uh, listen when you're the head coach of an international team and the world championships are coming up every guy you know is like hey you need any assistant coaches and i'm like yeah you got 30 grand you know can you get 30 grand right can you raise 30 grand 40 grand 50 grand um because you know there's lots of guys out there you know and i'm just not going to bring a buddy of mine for no reason uh we're going to raise money and we were able to uh raise a lot of I, i raised a lot of money for Austria over the seven years, and a lot of money for Ireland, uh, enough to offset the cost to the players because most it's self-funded. Most players pay two, three thousand dollars out of pocket to go to these tournaments, uh, and we were able to cut that cost uh, more than in half for the players on the national team, which is important, especially for the local players. It's one thing if you got a kid who grew up in Connecticut who's got a Irish passport who's working on Wall Street, right. Or you're a university student in Ireland, you know, and you got to pay, pay three thousand dollars out of pocket. You know, it's not really fair um, that some people couldn't go because they couldn't afford it, even if they could make the team. So we were always trying to cut costs and raise money. So I did a lot of fundraising, and over the years, I felt like I was really tapping my uh, my resources. And anyway, so before the 2018s, I said, you know what? Right before, the six months before, I said, before this goes too far, I'm gonna I'm gonna retire now, and I'm not gonna go to the 2018 world championships um and i'm just gonna you know step back from coaching altogether so i had finished at the season at st pete and i coached in the summer travel team and i was like all right i'm done this season i'm not gonna coach so i also retired from ireland to kind of force myself into retirement you know i could have done one more you know i was the head coach for the world championships i could have gone but at the same time i'm working a normal job i would have burned all my vacation time for that year right you know and that's not fair to my wife either so and she's been, she's a saint she's been you know, letting me do this stuff for 15 years so anyway the point was i retired i kind of forced myself into retirement by giving up the world championships i can't really go back to coaching now after i retired right before the world championships i'm looking an idiot i gotta i gotta stay in retirement
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're done you don't think you'll you'll do anything at the youth level there in florida or get back involved in in the high school game there you're, you're really done
1: no, I think I'm done, man. I think that uh, you know, the the side effect of the most positive side effect of retiring from coaching has been is uh, I've been watching lacrosse. I for years when I was in Kingwood, I hardly watched any lacrosse games. I was too busy during lacrosse season coaching. You know, I had to go to I was, you know, I'd be at, I'd be at. Uh, at Kincaid High School, sitting up in the stands with Keith Tinnell and uh, Pete Laley and whoever else, watching Platt play, whoever, uh, you know, I would be watching film. I'd be scouting this game or right. that game. I'd be, you know, it was too much lacrosse. I was lacrosse all day, all the time. I was doing private lessons. I had seventh grade after high school, whatever. Uh, now I can watch games on during the season on Saturdays. I can t- I can DVR games. I can watch them. I'll watch two or three games a week. I can relax. I can follow it. You know, I can watch the MLL. I actually watched lacrosse again, which is you know, something I've been missing. You know? Do you find yourself going to
0: uh, to any high school games there?
1: I got to a couple. Yeah. I know a uh, college, so uh, Bob Wallace's kids play out here at yep. Florida Southern. Yep. So uh, he was actually just here this weekend, and I didn't get a chance to see him um the kids had uh they had a bunch of uh, t- like a round robin kind of thing i just couldn't make it out there but the last two years he's come out we've uh, hung out together and gone out to the games i could see carson play and meet up with them after the game bob and i got to hung out for a night that kind of stuff i've gone to university of tampa games uh i dalton sulver who was uh one of my team captains uh last couple of years and uh, kingwood he's uh at uh playing D1 lacrosse at High Point, and uh, they are in the same uh, conference as Jacksonville. So uh, every other year when they play in Jacksonville, I go up there yeah, awesome. and I watch High Point play Jacksonville. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Ethan Gant, who played for me at Kingwood, he plays at Colorado Mesa. Colorado Mesa was down here playing Florida Southern when Bob was here. So I got to see this kid and his parents, his mom and stuff. Uh, I got to see all them. You know, that's uh, I'm, that, I'm into that now, you know, the seeing a kid that I coached play.
0: Right, the know, relationships, kind of right? Yeah. yeah.
1: So, you know, I mean, <clears throat> like I said, it's not – you know how many how many lacrosse games I've been to, man? It's nice to uh, go to a few a year and really savor them, you know?
0: Yeah, you know, during the season you're on a forced march. If, like you said, if you're not at practice or at a game for your team, you're you're hopefully preparing for one of those two things. And if you're not doing that, you're scouting – right? You're watching film or you're at games, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I still talk to other coaches and uh, international coaches, friends of mine, like Richie Hauer, who's the, who took my place as the head coach at uh, Austria. He was visiting recently to the States. He spent some time over here. We talked lacrosse stuff, talked to practice plans, we talk about the you know, personnel and adjustments to make and that kind of stuff. And I still get some of that here and there, you know, talk to Taylor, you know, that kind of stuff. And yeah, still, uh, shoot the shit with other coaches and you know, whatever. Hey, you got a ride, you got a clear, Hey, here's one, you know, let's talk about that. What's, what's going on? I got a bunch of big, I uh, got a bunch of big, fast defenders. Hey, have you tried this? Whatever. I like talking lacrosse still. And I like yeah, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. I just, just don't do it full time anymore. you know?
0: Yeah. I think, uh, as I recall last year when I was throwing around ideas for different rides, you were the first person I <coughs> called. We had, uh, you and I on the were on the phone for an easy an hour, hour and a half. And I was, on my whiteboard the whole time you were talking, drawing shit up on the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, see, I love that, man.
1: I still love that stuff. Yeah. I just don't want to spend 30 hours a week uh, yelling at kids, you know? I mean, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Or you know, my, my wife would say, you know, it's like uh, my phone would ring starting at 7 in the morning, you know? And she'd be like, geez, people just don't quit. And I'm like, you know, the, the, being, being, having access to the coach is one of the more positive things you can offer to p- parents, you know? Yep. So, yeah, I get that call in the morning. I was like, hey, coach, how's it going? It's, uh, you know, whoever. And I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? And I, hey, listen, I'm not one of those dads. But uh, <laughs> and then they go, they go on to be one of those dads. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, listen, I hear what you're saying, man, you know? They're basically listen. Another kid sucks, and my kid's better. I'm like yeah, you know, you're probably right, but everyone deserves their chance. Blah blah blah. Whatever. You go through it, um, but you know, I never bothered making you know? them. But uh, certainly, there's a lot of that. I, you know, some of that I don't miss. You know, uh, you know, but uh, for the most part, I do miss it a lot. My wife asks me all the time about it as well. And, uh, but like I said, watching it and talking about it, it's good enough for me for now.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome. Well, man, we've been at it for. Uh... Holy cow, oh, we've been at it for like an hour and a half. Yeah, these are. Oh, no, right? I, had,
1: I had said to my wife I'm not going to do I'm not going to parody this thing and do it for 2 hours. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I've turned that into a verb. Is that a verb? Is that the yeah. thing? <laughs> can use it in a lot of situations.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that was awesome. That was a good time. Man, I love I I tell everybody I do this with. I said I, I love just sitting for, you know, 90 minutes or so and just deliberately talking about a single thing. Without any interruption, yeah. and with just complete focus, right? It's awesome. Um, yeah, that, it's well, this is super
1: fun, man, and I, yeah. and I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. It's uh, like I said, this is this is exactly how I like to approach lacrosse these days. This is perfect.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know? The uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, hey, do you do you think we missed anything? No.
1: So, I'm not, right. we, dude, I could talk for days about lacrosse, but no, no, it was good, man. You know, I, I you know, the, the one thing I will say is that uh, I'm excited. You know, I, I haven't been following as closely as I should. I did at first, the first, uh, the first two seasons, but uh, every time I check in on Texas lacrosse and Houston lacrosse, it's impressive. You know, it's just, uh, it's amazing. I, you know, uh, I'm on, the, obviously I follow a bunch of people on Twitter and this kind of stuff. I told you that, you know, Dalton Silver, who plays at High Point, was just named team captain for this season, his senior year. Jacob Tatum, uh, is at Stevenson going to his junior year? He's absolutely destroying it. Like from, since he was a freshman, he's just lighting it up yeah, on yeah. attack. So yeah, I just love watching that and those clips, you know. And then you see like uh, the, the goalie from Kingwood, Lucas Borchers, is now also going a high point. We got a little little pipeline going there, that kind of stuff, you know. So, and I just like watching all the different players as they're going off. For a long time, it seemed that in 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 Houston that players would go, but they come back. Right. You know. Uh, right. A lot of great players. Hunter Hendrick went to Quinnipiac, came back after a season. We sent a bunch of guys up to schools. They come back. It's it's almost like I was the the head coach of the LSU club team because they'd all go off and they come back and they all go to LSU to party. <laughs> and like half the team was Kingwood guys or whatever, you know. But uh, it's it's you know Texas A and M, Texas A and M and LSU. You know, I could, you know, just follow their seasons. It's all Kingwood clowns. But uh, it's uh, Texas. It's got a, a lot of players here. Every roster you look at for every team, D one, two, and three. You just look. There's always a kid from Texas. On yeah, there's Texas you know, it's everywhere. A, it's impressive. You know, it's it's fun to watch. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, hang on just
1: one sec. Keep the recording.